0: Welcome to episode 23. I'm going to call this one Reviewing Biography, The Case of Sylvia Plath. It's a review of my book, The Last Days of Sylvia Plath. Uh, It's a good review. (laughs) Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be reading it to you. Uh, I'm doing this not simply to tell you about my book about Sylvia Plath, but to... Uh, say something about the reviewing of biography itself. And I'm reading this particular review because it's the most unusual review I think I've ever received in the sense that it deals with the methodology of biography. And it looks at my book almost like a piece of engineering in a sense. If you follow the metaphor, as if someone is test driving the car, someone who's an expert, who uh, pays attention to the way it corners, the way it accelerates, the way it stops, the way it's, it's handling, the handling of the car. One of the profoundly disappointing things about reviews of biography is that they almost never do that. Um They never tell you really about the mechanics or the machinery of biography. They're usually book reports telling you about the subject, and usually what their viewer knows about the subject is what they received what they've read in the book, and then they pre- present themselves as an authority on the book, having in a sense received their authority by reading the book. Uh, And then they might spend a paragraph on saying, well, it's well written, or it's workmanlike, or uh, it's good or it's bad, or render some kind of judgment. As a result, uh, usually I learn nothing from reviews. I can be pleased by them, if they're good reviews. Occasionally I get a sense that they have some understanding of what I've done. Usually I can't tell. Uh, how much understanding the reviewer has because, again, as I say, the the review is essentially a book report. I find this true even when biographers write reviews, which I find very strange, Uh, even professional biographers. I think part of it is because of the conventions of reviewing. If you review for for a newspaper, for example, I think it's just expected that you're going to write that way, that people want to learn about the subject of the biography, and the biography is, what is it? It's a kind of vessel of content. Uh, it's not a novel. It's not a poem. Many don't even consider it a work of art, uh, maybe a good craftsmanship, which comes back to the words like workmanlike, for example. But the idea that biography is something more than that, especially if the biography is of a figure like Plath, about whom so much has been written. Uh, you'll read a review of a biography of Plath, and there may be some reference to other biographies, but generally the reviewer doesn't have the time or isn't an expert or can't can't don't have doesn't have the time to be informed about the subject so this is a big wind up to the review i 'm going to read to you i 'm not going to tell you who the reviewer is or where this review will appear i don 't think it has appeared yet. Uh, Until the end of the review, that will be the suspenseful part of this podcast. I want to say one other thing, and that is, I'm going to read the whole review. And you might ask yourself, maybe you wouldn't, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. Isn't this copyright infringement? How can you read a whole review? You know, it's just like printing a whole review that's not yours. Well, uh, some of you know I'm quite interested in fair use. Uh, and especially in the last 20 years, courts have looked at biography and not just biography, um, but they've looked at works which they call transformational, where you take something, someone else's work, and you transform it by your commentary, uh, by your photography, by whatever you do to it, it's considered transformational and not copyright infringement because you, as I say, have transformed it. Well, in effect, that's what I'm doing with this review. I'm not just reading you someone's review. I'm reading you my commentary on the review uh, and what it tells us all about the genre of biography. So without further ado, the review. Carl Rollison has written many literary biographies. Indeed, this is his second biography of Plath herself. What he has created in this most unusual book is a structure that allows the reader to become the biographer. He emphasizes a quantity of unpublished materials, journal entries, letters, interviews from people who were involved in the Plath-Hughes marriage to a greater or a lesser degree. In his method, Facts, which are put in quotation marks, come vividly to life, seen through the commentary of people not usually cited in Plath biographies. Just, I just love that first paragraph because it really gets at a number of things that I tried to do in the book. What's so unusual about this biography is it tells me things that I sort of knew Uh, that I didn't necessarily deliberately put in the book, like, you become your own biographer. And the truth is, I've been very influenced by uh, uh, an essay, by a classic essay by the historian Carl Becker, Every Man His Own Historian. But I couldn't have written that paragraph in the review. And it tells me something about my book. It brings to consciousness something about my book that I couldn't have put in quite those words. Okay, second paragraph of the review. Rollison begins with a chronology of the lives of both Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, presumably so that his primary text can be freed from the sometimes static feel of chronological fact. He also brings himself into the picture, explaining that he was in London during early 1963 as a drama student. So he vicariously knows, that's put in quotation marks, knows, the terrain of the last days of the title. Plath died in London on February 11, 1963. Then he begins to build a scaffolding that helps the reader ferret out the events of the marriage through various interchanges among friends and enemies, as well as the last days themselves. At the close of his preface, he contends that Sylvia Plath's last days were not inevitable. Just before this somewhat startling comment, Rolison announces, her story remains unresolved that's That's me commenting now that's what the book is about it's about putting everything in play. One of the things that people often say when they review or respond to a biography of the subject uh, for whom there have been other biographies. Not another biography of so-and-so, or what can there really be new? That's what publishers always want to know. Did you find out something new, as if it's all been settled? And what the last days of Sylvia Plath is trying to tell you is, none of it's settled, any more than your life is settled, or my life is settled. Okay, next paragraph. One of the reasons this methodology is effective, that is, that everything is unresolved, It seems to this reader is that there is nothing linear about those last seven months of Plath's existence. Perhaps all the earlier Plath biographers were too bound by calendars of events, and by emphasizing the days and times of happenings, they created the linearity linearity that did not work. Few lives have occasioned as much controversy as Sylvia Plath's, And the second-longest-running controversy has been what role Ted Hughes played in both her suicide and the oeuvre of her astonishing poetry, particularly the last poems that made up not only Ariel but the last section of her collected poems. Rollison sets all this before the reader. He emphasizes the work Harriet Rosenstein did before she was forced out of her biographical project, he has used her archived papers. He gives his readers succinct but unequivocal comments. He talks about those last months when Plath, she's quoting from the book, tried to reorder her own life in the midst of Hughes's alternating threats and reassurances. He explains that Hughes was having not only the well-known affair with Assia Wevel, but also an affair with Susan Alliston. Rolison's method is not to withhold... To the contrary, he gives his readers quantities of information, but conclusions from the fact-finding process are, most of the time, left to the reader. Again, become your own biographer. This is the new dimension, and as a technique, it wipes out the points of contention that Plath biographers have struggled with for over 50 years. That takes my breath away. That's <laughs> sure I would have... Baldly made that claim, but I'm happy to see it in a review. Next paragraph. Rollison has benefited from the recent publication of the two-volume Letters of Sylvia Plath, edited by Peter K. Steinberg and Karen V. Kukil. In volume two appear previously unpublished letters to Ruth Tiffany Barnhouse, her married name Ruth Boisher, Plath's therapist. These letters from Plath are the clearest reckonings of her state of mind during her marriage to Hughes, and particularly during the months Rawlison treats. But he goes one better and supplies an extensive description of the Plath Barnhouse relationship over the years while Plath is finishing her undergraduate degree through her marriage and then through her last months. In fact, Barnhouse becomes a kind of guide for Rawlison's book as well as, seemingly, for Plath's last days. Rollison also uses new information from Steinberg and Crowther 2017. This is a book called These Ghostly Archives, as well as every extant biography. Rollison carefully sequences the information he gives his reader. He aims for fusion as sets of materials are provided. He does not judge. The book Proper, for example, begins with a long section about E. Lucas Myers, Hughes's American friend from their post-university days. One of the closest of Ted's friends to the marriage, Myers admits to disliking Sylvia from the get-go, and eventually Myers wrote a long essay as part of Anne Stevenson's Plath biography. He published several other books about his love for Hughes, when I was interviewing Ted's friends for my mid-1980s biography of Plath, Myers admitted his great dislike and answered my questions with clear anger. So now you you may already know who the author of this review is. It's a plath biographer, it's a woman. I'll give you her name at the end of the review. The tactic Rollison uses here is to give the fullest possible picture of Myers. Besides his own words, Rollison draws on Plath and Hughes' letters to him and his to them. He also incorporates Myers' poetry. One of the things, and the review will get at this too, one of the things I was very conscious of, and one of the frustrating things about biography is, you're writing the biography of an individual. The focus has to be on that individual. The question always is, How much space do you give to the other people in that individual's life? And to what extent do you see those individuals as forming or shaping our view of the subject of the biography? And in a sense, no matter how much attention you give to those other figures, you're likely to end the biography feeling you could have said more about those figures. In fact, that's often what happens to me. Someone who's a minor figure in a biography, becomes the biographical subject in my next biography. Uh, it's organic in that sense. Next paragraph of the review. The greatest amount of new material that Rollison includes is the narrative of the way Ted's older sister, Alwyn, orchestrated all biographical projects that related to Hughes, including all work on Plath, Owen saw herself as the keeper of Ted's artistic work. She regularly refused permissions to any academic who might be critical of him in his work. She was imperious as well as consistent. As late as 2006, when I was hoping to publish an academic monograph on Plath's first poem collection, this is the reviewer speaking here, her first poem collection, The Colossus, Owen delighted in refusing permission through Faber, the British publisher, even though I had already paid the requested fees to Plass, American publisher. The work never saw print. This is the reviewer's work. To Owen, I was always that American feminist, a bra burner for sure, and nothing I would ever write could be trusted. reviewer speaking about herself. Most people reading a biography of Plath's last days would be, would, would be less interested in Owen Hughes's machinations with 50 years of biographers than the amount of space Rollison gives her. But he uses this narrative as he does all his tangential mini-accounts to build the picture of a closely protected Ted Hughes, a man Rollison contends was probably more depressive than Plath. Growing up in the poverty of his locale in a non-demonstrative home, Hughes was bad at expressing emotions. He certainly had had little training in being a baby minder or a house husband, and so what Plath saw as natural fatherly duties felt like oppression to his keen fixation on the masculine. Another fascinating mini-biography is the relationship with the Merwins, childless never bothered by any hint of poverty, very far themselves from enthusiasms for American domesticity. They seemed happy to give Ted and Sylvia their cast-off furniture, but they felt little harmony with or interest in their existence. Other especially provocative mini-biographies are Susan Fromberg Schaefer, an accomplished American poet and novelist, and Elizabeth Compton, an equally accomplished British friend, whose loyalty to Plath showed the kinds of rapport Plath was capable of exchanging. Again, the reviewer is realizing what it means to, in a sense, divagate or digress to talking about all these other figures. If you don't understand the method of The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, you might well say, as one reader on Goodreads did, that my book is scattered. Well, to continue with the review. The Last Days of Sylvia Plath is not only experimental in its structure, it is inclusive. When Rawlison writes more conventional biographer, biography, the reader comes away with a great deal of new information. For instance, when Rawson takes on the import of the bell jars emphasizing the Rosenbergs' execution, this is what he gives his readers. He's quoting from my book. Eight years earlier, the world that had gone mad and executed the Rosenbergs, accused of espionage on behalf of the Soviet Union, and that had depressed suicidal Sylvia Plath and Esther Greenwood. How much thoughts of the electrocuted Rosenbergs had undone Sylvia in June 1953 Is worth exploring because she never severed a sense of her own precarious existence from what was happening in a world at risk. Her interior temperature was closely attuned to the atmosphere outside herself. That's the quote from my book. That last phrase, her precarious existence, her own precarious existence from what was happening in a world at risk, her interior temperature was closely attuned to the atmosphere outside herself, which is what my book is about, the atmosphere outside herself. The review goes on. What rollison does to illustrate new insight about the summer of 1953 is to give the personal testimony of one of the other Mademoiselle College editors at some length. With succinct precision, Precision, in a bit over one page of this 300 page book, Rollison provides important psychological insight into the way Sylvia Plath absorbed everything around her, and a great deal of what she absorbed pained her. Rollison is even handed in these sections of clearly stated biography. He gives us sections that interpolate Ted Hughes' sometimes puzzling behavior, often based on his fear of disappointing Plath's high expectations of him. Rawlinson is right in these observations, too. Complicated artists both, Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, wore away the distinct edges of their personalities in their embrace and all-too-brief life together. What I like about that sentence is, it's a reviewer reviewing my book who also in a sense is writing her own biography as indeed she has written a biography of Plath. What Rawlison manages to do here, even as he must strain against the conventions of accepted literary biography, is to provide his readers with a feast of information. What his methodology may acknowledge is the inevitable smudging of any litany of facts, details worn away through hyperbolic explanations, sentiments unresolved, facts blurred into nothingness. And while the readers of The Last Days of Sylvia Plath learn an immense amount, they cannot obscure what is another fact of telling these lies. Lives that so many different and differing points of view can never entirely align. And that's how the review ends. To put it another way, as I said earlier in this podcast, what my book tries to do is to put everything in play. The reviewer is Linda Wagner-Martin. The review will appear in an academic journal, Resources for American Literary Study. Thank you for listening.